On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, thank you for checking out the Performance Anxiety Podcast on the Pantheon Podcast Network. As always, I'm your host, Mark, and I am thrilled to welcome Craig Calloway and Joe Cardamone, a.k.a. Queen Kwong and Skeleton Joe, to the podcast. Craig talks about growing up in a hotel and her dad's industrial-slash-punk nightclub in Denver. Once she started focusing on music, this would be after her sixth-grade band, Population 3, one of her first gigs was opening for Nine Inch Nails and, as she describes it, messing up on a large scale. She's also written music with him that's never even come out. But she really started finding her voice after meeting Joe Cardamone from the Icarus line. With Joe's help, Corey has developed a unique improvisational style of recording albums. In fact, their maxim is, the first take may not be the best sounding, but it's the most honest. So they try to stick to that whenever possible. It's worked for her albums as well as the Quarantina film project she and Joe collaborated on over the pandemic. Cray also discusses her late diagnosis of cystic fibrosis and how that has affected her. She's got a new album out soon called Couples Only, and she tells me why she used that name and how much of the record is about reclaiming her voice after a pretty rough divorce. Follow her at Queen Kwong on social media, follow Joe at Joe underscore Cardamone, and pick up the new album couples only wherever you get music follow us at performance anx support the show with a review or money merch is available through performanceanx.threadless.com you can buy us a cup of coffee at ko-fi.com slash performance anxiety now check out queen kong and skeleton joe on performance anxiety part of the pantheon podcast network okay uh so the podcast even it's performance or i mean it's a performance anxiety performance anxiety right this is Kure from queen kwong on performance anxiety i forgot to mention the record but i'm not sure how to fit that in i think you just did that'll work okay (laughs) (laughs) nailed it you don't want to hear us talk more than that (laughs) gets bleak fast oh well joe's been on before so we did like a like an hour last time i think so Yep, I'm motor mouth. But we don't have to. <laughs> we don't have to go too deep into Joe's past because we've already done that. So, <laughs> been there, done that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One take wonder. Exactly. Yeah. I heard that. I heard that. That's basically how you do your records. Yes. Yeah. So I definitely want to get into that. But before we get into into too much. I want to find out a little bit about how you got into music in the first place. Was there a lot of it? When you were growing up, was there a lot in the house? Were you playing instruments, taking lessons? Well, like every good Asian, I was forced to <laughs> uh, take piano lessons from a young age. Um, it didn't stick, though, very well. So um, I think I took classical piano from the age of four to, I don't know, a few years. But other than that, uh, I am self-taught. And um, I grew up 
in a little bit of an unusual situation. I grew up in a hotel mostly and my dad owned a infamous uh, kind of punk and industrial nightclub in Denver. And so um, that was around for like 20 years. So I grew up there too. And I was exposed to a lot of music from an early age and a music scene of sorts um, from a really early age. But my parents themselves aren't very musical. I kind of found my own way to playing music. When did that happen? When, when did you really get the bug to go out and start playing in front of people? Um, well, I was started writing lyrics at a really early age. I think I just made up melodies and songs and poems. And so I got really into writing lyrics. And then my first memory of wanting to be a performer or, um, I had a band quote unquote band in the sixth grade with two other girls who I just kind of forced into it. Um, (laughs) and what was it called? Population three. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Uh, yeah, I still, I actually have a recording of that was the first recorded song we did. Um, it's pretty funny. And my music teacher who was kind of a creep, took an interest in me and he programmed the music and we recorded it with him. Oh, wow. And I still have the recording. So that was in the sixth grade, but that was before I played guitar. But from there, from that music teacher and, um, I guess, yeah, it's pretty much him. Hate to credit him too much, but (laughs) he got me into, uh, playing guitar and I think he gave me a guitar to use. And I got into, I guess, um, into teaching myself guitar and was doing the singer songwriter thing when I was a preteen. And then in high school, I was, um, in a little kind of punk rock band and that's how it all began. So as you're doing this and getting more confidence, you end up opening for nine inch nails. How did you, how did that whole connection happen? How did you meet Trent and get an opening slot on one of, on his tour? Um, so I've opened for Trent a few times over the years. It seems like it's kind of cyclical, but I was supposed to go to, um, college in New York city and I had graduated, um, couple, about a year and a half early from high school. And I was driving towards the East coast and spent some time in new Orleans, stopped there. And by chance, like I knew he had a studio down there. I wasn't a huge nine inch nails fan per se, but I ran into, I'm trying to remember who I ran into first, but basically I met one of the guys who worked for him and I talked a big game and I don't know exactly what I said. I was a really kind of crazy kid, but I got myself into the studio and he was there with Alan Mulder and Atticus Ross and they put me on the spot really to, and they're just like, okay, well play us something. And I, uh, I played them something and Trent recorded three demos with me that night. Oh, wow. And said he was, um, relocating to Los Angeles the next month and said, I should do the same. And <laughs> I did. Um, and yeah. And then from there, he just, uh, asked me to open for him 
I guess I did the with teeth tour. And then I fear a few years later, I opened wave goodbye. And then a few years ago, I also opened for him in Vegas. So it's kind of just been a weird, a weird thing. A, a weird recurring happened. connection. Uh, yeah. There's, I, I don't try to find meaning in it. I don't, I'm not really, <laughs> I don't subscribe to the belief that everything happens for a reason. It's just one of those weird things. So how did, uh, what, what kind of a reaction did you get? So you're, you're opening for Nine Inch Nails, but it's just you up there with the guitar? Yeah. I mean, when I was a teenager, the first time it was just me and a guitar. Wow. Um, it was really terrible. <laughs> oh, no. Really, really, really terrible. Um, extraordinarily terrible. And yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. It was kind of the... His fans are pretty extreme. Whenever you're a sort support band for most bands, especially bigger bands people are not there to see you, you know? Right, yeah. So, but, but his fans are very extreme. They did, they don't want to see anybody but him. And it was, um, the first time I opened, they were the first shows. And after, I think he took a hiatus, like just several years off or something. And, um, and I was the first person they saw and they were not thrilled Oh. and wow. I wasn't thrilled either. There was just a lot of shit thrown at me God. and, uh, yeah, it was pretty weird, but I think, um, after that experience, I wasn't really afraid of anything well, <laughs> in it. terms of performance, you know, performing or, you know, I've had, it's, I started out my career kind of really messing up on a very large scale in front of a lot of people. <laughs> so did you, you have know, much, I just, you didn't have much live care. experience before that though, did you? Um, I mean, I played with my high school band and at, in front of friends yeah, and I played some coffee shops, you know, some open mic yeah. nights in Denver. So coffee but shops no, in Denver was, to nine inch nails. Yeah. It was pretty weird. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with the stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Try doing that in person. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And a special offer to Performance Anxiety listeners you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. That's betterhelp.com slash performance anxiety. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. Well, fast forward a few years, you end up releasing an EP, uh, Bad Lieutenant.
album, were the songs much different? I mean, were it was your did any of the songs that you were, had been playing on any of the uh, Nine Inch Nails tours? Did they ever? Did any of them evolve, become anything that you ended up recording out later? No, no. Ah, okay. And I think I did. You know, I worked with Trent at a studio out here when I first moved out here. I was working with him on some music, and I really didn't like it. And um, no, I, I I'm not precious when it comes to holding on to material that I don't feel great about. So I don't even remember really what I played initially for those nail shows, but no, none of the stuff on my EP or any of the recordings afterwards were those songs. Now I'm under the impression and you can correct me if this is, if, if I'm wrong, but when you are going to record your albums, it's a lot of uh, stream of consciousness, uh, improvisational lyrics. Is the music similar that way or? Yeah. So I love this because this is like the only time ever, the first and probably only time that Joe has to just listen to me talk about myself. <laughs> we'll bring Joe in in a minute. Once we get, once I we get wish there. we could extend the Zoom. Now I wish it could be longer. Um, no, actually, Joe's a big part of this. I, I really struggled with recording for a long time because working with Trent and other pretty prominent producers at first, I hated recording and I really couldn't figure out a way to record anything and feel good about releasing it. So Joe, um, I'm not really sure how it first happened, but when we recorded get a witness, we started this creative process. It seems to be the only creative process that works for me. And I think I didn't realize how unusual it was until recently really, but for Joe, it was, I think he was totally comfortable with how I do things. So we just were really compatible in this way where the creative process started being just an improvised thing where I'll go into Joe's studio and maybe he will um, start making a beat and I'll start playing guitar or maybe a bass line to it. It could be anything, will, anything yeah. to play a song, you know, it's just like yeah. whatever, something something happens and it's, it's like, a starting point next? we'll just yeah okay so we just kind of build off of that and we improvise and go with whatever's happening freestyle so. song in like two hours then we're like yeah. not doing that song we're doing something else oh wow yeah. i i think we pretty and i know pretty fast like if i'm not into something i just i can't force myself to work on it okay so, so how do yeah i mean the immediacy and the of improvising like that is the only way i seem to be able to record and joe has no problem with it he um is really I mean, supportive you know. how i record you know so. yeah, yeah. I got busted at the party the, or that the shoot this weekend. I walked into the room and Alexander, who I've recorded his band, is talking to the band we're doing the video for. 
and bragging, or I don't know if it's bragging, but he's telling the guys that I wouldn't let him do a second take of vocals. He's like, you won't believe yeah. it, man. He won't let you do another take. It's it. That's one vocal you got. And honestly, that's what I appreciate because I, I was so used to before that it was just like doing so many takes and it was lifeless and absolutely a miserable experience to have to do so many takes. Yeah. And I, I think for me, is it the best sounding version of the song that could ever exist? No, the first version is maybe not the best sounding or most perfected, but it's definitely the most honest. Yeah. And, sure. um, I think Joe and I appreciate that more, you know, above anything. It is the most honest take. Um, What's the first time you're ever saying those words out loud into a mic? So you still mean them, you know, in the moment, which is. Yeah, it's like the most genuine, but it doesn't, it's not like you've spent a bunch, you know, it's in real time. So it's not like it's been completely thought out. It's not polished. That's not the point anyways. So how did you two meet? Uh, a <laughs> guy and a Filipino walk into a bar. <laughs> a priest and a rabbi walk into a bar. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we've been known each other for so long. We just through friends, I think, really okay. through mutual friends, really or mutual enemies. I'm not sure. Whatever. Yeah, just like you know, it was. It's a small world after all. You know, <laughs> it was just like that kind. Yeah. Of, really, you know. And after we've the. What's that? We did not meet on Tinder. No. <laughs> God, that is definitely not what happened. Don't put that out. I mean, Instagram. Tinder didn't even exist. It yeah, was it was it was MySpace probably. Yeah, no, none of that existed. No, no it was um, in real life through I think a mutual connection, and we very briefly dated, which it seems very Old strange. Old-fashioned, boring way. It wasn't, yeah, I, it wasn't very boring, but it was something. Um, <laughs> but I think we, I mean, we've, it was so long ago. I mean, we're kind of, we're just family at this point. I mean, we've known each other for like 17 years. It's kind of insane. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. But that, that actually makes a lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense to me that the way you guys work together works for you because you've known each other for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we also, um, we're really aligned in terms of what we appreciate about music and art. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff we do isn't for everybody, but we get it. And so, um, and it's rare to find. So we've kept up that relationship. Even more so aligned in what we don't appreciate about. That's music. true. <laughs> That's true. That's Yeah. Which is also rare to find these days. We definitely, uh, hate the same stuff <laughs> relationship built on mutual hate yes excellent all right well i've gone back and i've listened to the albums and there, i can definitely hear the pro- hear progression like um on the first album i gotta say i do like that chris isaac cover baby did a bad bad thing that that was i wasn't expecting that when i looked at the uh the tracks on that Try with all your heart and soul to get your love 
I'm not great at covers, but the ones that I, for some reason, gravitate towards are kind of, it, you wouldn't think. Um, but yeah, that was a fun song. I'm a huge Chris Isaac fan. So, Oh yeah. And then love me to death. I mean that Joe, I can definitely hear your influence in that album more so than get a witness to my ears. It sounds more. Wow, Joe doesn't want to hear that. I think he would disagree. Really? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know to be honest, you know, That's interesting. Cool. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think we, I think, um, at that point, I think Joe had more of an influence actually on get a witness, to be honest. It was, that okay. was just the two of us. I mean, it was just the two of us really not knowing. Um, and, and it was sonically very challenging. We, but we were both figuring out a lot and we just did it. And then I put it out cause I just needed to put something out and it kind of drew a, a hard line in the sand in terms of being a pretty polarizing act. It's a polarizing record. It's hard to listen to. Um, it's very stream of consciousness. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, I want to talk to you about socks for a second. Why not? It's a music podcast, but I tried a pair of socks from Boldfoot and loved them. I've only worn them once because my kids have stolen them. So in my household, that's the best endorsement I can give. And I guess it's fitting because the design I chose was jailbait. Wait, jailbird. The design I chose was jailbird. I might keep that in. The socks are 100% American made and 5% of all proceeds go to veteran charities. It makes sense seeing that Boldfoot is a family and veteran owned company. They have a huge variety of styles. So check out boldfoot.com and buy some of the best socks you've ever slapped on your feet and help veterans while you're at it. That's boldfoot.com. We weren't concerned so much sonically about, you know, things sonically. It was more just capturing the moment and putting it out. Okay. But I think Joe played a really, I mean, it was only the two of us on that record. I think you were even playing drums or something and you're not a, you're not a drummer. Um, I'm a fantastic drummer. <laughs> I mean, listen true. to the record and decide for yourself. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it worked for what I needed to do in the moment. And then I think Love Me to Death was a little more, um, quote unquote, polished. That's a, that's a stretch. But um, <laughs> it was a little more put together than um, Get a Witness. And yeah, and then this one, I think, is a departure too. I think for both Joe and I, we always strive to challenge ourselves and not do the same thing over and over. One of the questions that really that popped into my head as I'm listening to this and, and reading about how you do record in a stream of conscious manner, when you go and you play live, are you, you playing are the songs the same or are you doing stream of conscious live? No, I don't think 
anything is ever the same. And I never really play anything the same way twice, but the, if you hear get a witness, for instance, and then I play a lot of those songs live, actually, they've definitely evolved into something else to the point where, um, people would come up to me afterwards and say, geez, I, you know, you should record, re-record, get a witness with how you play it live or whatever. Because the thing is, is when you record like how we do, that's the first time the recorded version is basically the first time we've ever played it. And, and then when you tour and you play the songs, you know, 50, a hundred times later, they evolve into, it's kind of the opposite of what other people do. Other (laughs) people will play a song for a really long time, learn it, figure it out, figure out the kinks, let it evolve and then record the record version of it, you know, but for me, it's the opposite. So everything is pretty different live and um, has evolved a lot, which I, I like though, like I don't, I don't like going to shows and hearing the band play what, you know, having them play exactly what it sounds like on the record. It's right. Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. Me either. I, I, I love hearing that. Thing. Might as well listen to the record. You know? Yeah. Might exactly. as well just stay home, which I'd rather do anyway. Exactly. Uh, I wanted to ask you about, uh, and we can go into this as little or as much as, as you're comfortable with you diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Was uh-huh. that after love me to death or during or before? Um, it was, I think a month before love me to death was released, but it was after we recorded it. Wow. Okay. So can you kind of explain to me a little bit about the diagnosis, what it, what it is, uh, and how you found out what, you know, what were you were feeling to make you go and and have the tests? Uh, it's kind of crazy because Joe was, was the first person I, okay. So I was living in New York part-time, um, because I was going to college there a few years ago and I just suddenly started coughing up a lot of blood in the middle of the night. And, um, it was really, it was probably like three in the morning in New York. So, um, I called Joe cause I figured he's, the, he was on the West coast. Uh, yeah. I FaceTimed Joe cause Coughing I wanted him to see, oh, wow. I was like something. Yeah. So, um, I woke up coughing up blood and I thought it was a bloody nose. And anyone who's lived in New York knows like the radiators there in the winter, like it really dries you out. I thought I had a bloody nose. I tasted blood in my mouth and then started coughing it up and I was, couldn't stop coughing it up. And I FaceTimed Joe. I'm not even sure why I was really freaked out and I didn't know anyone else who would be awake. And he was on the West coast and, and he, I was the last one you wanted to call, but you had to call me. Yeah, I was like, that's my only option. He would be awake. Um and Joe is just like, You need to go to the hospital now. He almost like, threw up when I he almost threw he was like, Don't show me that. He's oh. like, hang up and call nine one one. Yeah, um, it was it was a full sink full of blood. Wow. It was, it was a it lot. Was gnarly. Oh my god. It was pretty terrifying. Um it was really strange. But yeah, it was a full, it was a full sink of bright, bright blood and I couldn't stop. And I felt like I was choking. So I ended up having a call 911 and I got rushed to the hospital. And at first they thought I had like tuberculosis and they couldn't really figure it out. And I was quarantined. And then, um, they sent me, they, you know, after hours of being in the emergency room, they gave me a Z pack of antibiotics. And I'm like, Oh, we think you just have a lung infection. You'll be fine. And so I went about my merry way. And and then about 12 hours later, the same thing happened again. Mm -hmm. And I was with another friend who took me to a better hospital in the city. And, um, they ran 
uh, CAT scan and, and they also put, um, a camera, a, a bronchial camera down my lungs and saw that my lungs has a lot of, uh, scarring. Wow. And they said, you know, this doesn't usually happen with people your age, unless they suffer from, uh, cystic fibrosis. And I didn't know what that was. So it is a lung disease that you're born with. Um, and usually I think 90% of people are diagnosed as infants, um, or newborns really. And yeah, it's a, it's strange how it manifests in me. Cause it's, I think the average life expectancy now is 40 and I was diagnosed, um, really late in life. So it's, it's, you know, it's strange. Wow, man. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm assuming that had an, uh, an effect on what you do, how you write the, the music that you make and, and your outlook on things. I mean, my Maybe outlook not. on things has always been a little dark, so I'm not <laughs> sure it could get much darker. Um, you know, I think I was diagnosed probably only two months before the rest of my life fell apart. And so I don't even think I had time uh, to really process the diagnosis. Um, I just kind of went into survival mode to get through everything else that was going on and, yeah. and the immediate, um, my immediate needs and put the diagnosis and whatever it meant on the back burner. And it probably still is to a degree, um, because I think I've just been focusing on getting back on my feet after going through a divorce, et cetera, and, yeah. and my life being turned upside down. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure I've even really gotten to the, gotten to really process what the diagnosis means. I just, right. you know, maybe I'm just still in the denial phase. I don't know. Oh, uh, well, look, I'm really thrilled with discovering you really and through joe because oh. when he he was talking about joe on uh, when he came on the podcast and you guys were in the middle of doing the quarantina project mm. which i just fell in love with i thought that was incredible i mean my favorite video of that whole series is cluster b Correa, your your performance in that is just amazing. It, Which one is that? That's the one. There's a lot. Crying. Oh, of course, the crying. Yeah, <laughs> that is just such an emotional video. It's it's amazing. It really is. Um, thanks, thanks. I um, I mean, I feel that was a really that project came along. I think when we both really needed it. And, um, Joe and I had been talking about doing something collaborative and he sent me the music at first and, and then he took it on the path to quarantina and it became a film project and I'm not an actress. So it was very, it was something totally different for me, but I trust Joe's vision all the time. And, um, so, and I'm always up for trying stuff, but yeah, that, that crying scene I was stressed out about it at first. I didn't think I could do it, but I forgot how, uh, how well Joe can make me cry. <laughs> easily Joe can make me cry it, probably within seconds. I was like, I don't know if I could cry. And then Joe's like, let's talk about your life. Oh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> 
yeah. So yeah, that was uh, fun. So the kid crying was fun. So you've done a good crier. (laughs) Now in the time between your last album and the quarantina and you know the the whole pandemic, you've got a lot accomplished. I mean, so you graduated from college with honors. You founded an all natural skincare line. Did your own podcast, Never Meet Your Idols. And at this point, it says you've nearly finished your first collection of sculptural artwork. Oh, you got the buy. You got, you got the press release. Oh, yeah. The full press release. <laughs> and you've completed a, an album with Joe. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty that damn busy. The easiest part. We did the album during quarantine, basically. Yeah. Okay. It was right on the heels of that. Wow. Um, yeah. And we started even before we were done filming that thing. We started meeting. Yeah, there was an overlap. I mean, right. I was there a lot in his studios at his house. So we started on ideas like um, we recorded, I guess. Yeah, we did record the first song that we recorded. The first couple. We would do half a day on that and then start. And, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I, that makes job. sense because a lot of what quarantine, it looks like it was, you know, it was filmed at night. So yeah a lot of free time during so we the day. record during the day and then do quarantine-ish stuff at night i mean quarantine was like a long project yeah um mm-hmm. so there was an overlap yeah a lot of us a lot of it time was, together it was awesome though it was fun as fuck i thought we were we were being productive and just like yeah we both yeah. needed it it had been a while i think yeah that's like the dream is to be able to like make art with people you care about every day like oh yeah yeah how, how fucking lucky can you be you yeah. know? I think you guys were the most productive people I've ever met during that the whole pandemic. That, that's amazing. I think we our outputs pretty. I, we never struggle in terms of <laughs> creative output. I think Joe and I are pretty productive when it comes to that. I think we just need to figure out a way to monetize it. Oh yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> the challenge. <laughs> well, there's a lot of different styles of music on the album. I mean, there's like there's a. I don't love the first single. I know who you are. Uh, like a 50s, 60s doo-wop sound on On The Run. And this was all, again, stream of conscious, improvising lyrics. And would Joe, was Joe coming up with the, the music and you were doing the, the lyrics? How, how did, was the process with you guys for this one? Was it I think this record, um, actually, of course, Joe's, everything's always, you know, 50-50 between us. But I think this is the record where I can take a lot of the credit for more music than before. I think I've always written music, but I think Joe, we got into, like we inspire each other in a way where Joe usually brought the initial music to the table and I would bring lyrics. Um, this time, I think I, like a lot of the last couple of records, we both played guitar, but this record, it's mostly me, um, oh, except cool. for a couple of- I've been playing guitar on anything really. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm so- I've been wanting to touch a guitar for a while. And I, I think it just made me rise to the occasion and it felt really good. I, it was really empowering to have this record really be a showcase of what I can do. And Joe is always 
inspires me and supports me and kind of brings out the best in me. But, um, I think I could take a lot of responsibility for the music and, um, in terms of the guitar stuff, but Joe, um, is really great at coming up with beats and synth lines. I just find the parts that are missing. You know? Yeah. That's that's pretty. Really, like what I'm there. And for. I think you also like bring out what, you know, when I'm on, when I'm going down a path, he's able to kind of just say, yeah, stick with that, go yeah. with that, you know? So it was, I don't know. I'm really proud of this one. I mean, I'm proud of them all, but this is a departure for me because I finally felt confident enough to really take the lead with the music too. There's a few songs that sound like they're a little on the nose about the divorce. Is that the case? Like morning song yeah. and my biggest, biggest mistake. Oh. Big rock star standing next to me. None of these pussies equal sex to me. He's just another dog licking at my feet. That was intent. You know, that was very intentional. I wasn't trying to be poetic on this record. It's, it is pretty fucking straightforward what happened. Yeah. And it's really the only way I have to reclaiming my voice in a way and setting the story straight. And so I, I wasn't trying to be coy or beat around the bush. And I think there is something powerful about that. You know, I mean, I always did. I, I hate when things are too obvious, mm-hmm. but I think this is more just a punch to the throat in a lot of ways. There's, there's no poetic way of saying some of it. Right. Um, I'm not trying to hide anything, you know, it was a very cathartic record because of that. How did you choose the title couples only? I went roller skating in a skating rink here and there was a couples <laughs> only sign. And I, when I play live shows, there's always a point where I'd play one of the more you know, the slower kind of ballady songs. And I would jokingly say like, Oh, this song is for couples only. But I thought it was funny that this record is a lot about loss and, um, and the downside of romanticizing love and, um, and it's a divorce record in a lot of ways. So, um, I thought it'd be funny to call it couples only. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of my favorite songs is actually one of the the more touching songs, Stanley R.I.P. After we found 
Yeah, that song, uh, that song I wrote while Joe was taking a smoke break and it was after the squirrel. Yeah. And, a, and his cat had killed a squirrel. It was really upset about it. Um, so it is, it really is a dead squirrel about a dead squirrel, <laughs> but, but it brought out a lot of, obviously it was, it's a really raw song. It brought yeah. out a lot of emotions and, and you could hear all the birds in the background because the doors were open. So there's a lot of noise in that track because I wrote it while we were on a break. So the studio doors were open and we just left it as is it to preserve kind of the, um, the visceral aspect of it. That's, that's the, exactly the word. That's perfect. It's, and it's one of my favorite songs that, that, and I know who you are, my two favorites on the album. So, and you've got some great guests. You got, uh, Roger O'Donnell from the cure, Christoph Hahn from swans who love swans. Before I get to the socials and how to get to the album, because we are running out on time, what is, yeah. what does EMDR ATM mean? <laughs> um, We're not allowed well, to say it. No. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> it, this could be triggering for some people, so I I easily offend, I guess. Nearly had me convinced that I You know, Joe and I, a lot of the time, because a lot of it's improvised, I mean, most of it, we don't have any idea of what the song's going to be. So when we name we'll a session, we'll do it like, be the- before there's vocals. There'll be a Yeah, so we don't know what this song's about. Okay. Um, so the title came up because I think EMDR is a trauma, it's a therapy technique for trauma. And I was doing it in, with my therapist before I went to the studio one day. And Joe was like, what did you do in therapy? What did you talk about in therapy? And I said, oh, I'm doing this thing called EMDR. And I explained to him what it was. And I think he was just like, that's some ass to mouth shit or something. <laughs> <laughs> so he said something crude. So we just titled the song we were working on before I even knew what it was about, you know, EMDR, ATM. That sounds like a perfect way to end this thing. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So how can people find the album and pre-order it and follow you on social media to find out what you're up to? And Well, it's at Queen Kwong on pretty much all socials. And the record comes out July 12th on a label called Sonic Ritual. There'll be um, pre-orders for a limited run of vinyls that we're announcing soon. That'll be, um, I'll announce it through my socials and also through Sonic Ritual. And, um, yeah, we have a bunch of singles coming out still beforehand, two singles already out. Um, and I think it's available to digitally pre-save on wherever, wherever you do that. I did see that. I did see that. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, Joe, got just like a a minute or two. Do you have anything that you're working on that uh, you want to let us know about? No, 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 I don't know. Yeah, not really. (laughs) I, I, you know, I've been, uh, we're doing a bunch of music videos. Yeah, I've been directing a lot of videos, and uh, I'm supposed to do a new album here this year. Supposed to. Oh, wait. This is what we should be talking about. We're trying to put together a tour together. Oh, awesome. 
So yeah. for probably UK and Europe. So we're trying to do that later this year. We the need Masters, to start talking about that. The Masters of Disaster Tour. Oh yes. man, that is awesome. Big bummer. Well, when, Big that, bummer. when that comes out, maybe we'll get you guys both back on. We can get some more details about that. Yeah, let's try to, we'll try to sort it out. Yeah, I hate rushing you guys. I'm, I'm so sorry. We no, no, no. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Oh, my pleasure. Cameo by the dogs. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks for the chat. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shot? Would they shot? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom is dead. My mom is right there. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.